0: And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usri, and I'm happy to welcome Karen Abbott back to the program today. Abbott is a best-selling and respected writer of historical nonfiction. Her previous efforts are Sin in the Second City, American Rose, and Liar Temptress Soldier Spy. Today we'll be talking about her latest, The Ghost of Eden Park, The Bootleg King, The Women Who Pursued Him, and The Murder That Shocked Jazz Age America. Abbott, after going to the mid-19th century and the Civil War and liar temptress soldier spy, what brought you back to the 20th century and the days of vice in America?
1: Well, I usually get my book ideas from archives or libraries or out-of-print books or something like the Civil War, which I lived in Atlanta for a while and couldn't escape it. But I got the idea for this because I was a big Boardwalk Empire fan, which ran on HBO for five seasons. And I thought it was a really brilliant show. They perfectly captured the dawn of the 1920s, bootleggers were just starting to figure out how to circumvent prohibition laws and nobody had yet heard of Al Capone. And George Remus, you know, was a minor character on Boardwalk Empire. And I think that he was so innovative in Cuckoo and he stole every scene he was in. You know, there's a great scene where he is on the phone with Steve Buscemi's character, Nucky Thompson, and they're doing a business deal and things are getting a bit heated. And Remus says, you know, speaking of himself in the third person, Remus finds you petty and resentful. (laughs) Um, And Steve Buscemi retorts, well, Remus can go himself. Well. And I wanted to know if he was a real person. And indeed, George Remus was a real person who did speak of himself in the third person. And his life was much more interesting and dramatic, I think, than anything portrayed on Boardwalk Empire.
0: But do you think that tendency for him to speak in the third person kind of indicated his lack of mental stability that would show up later in his life?
1: You know, it's an interesting question. Not
0: well integrated.
1: (laughs) I think that Remus was somebody who was always developing the next iteration of his persona. And if I were going to psychoanalyze him, I would say that to view himself objectively, he would do that. And speaking of himself in the third person sort of allowed him to see where he wanted Remus the persona to go and how he would direct Remus, his person, into that field. And I also think he was a huge egomaniac. And once he started accomplishing the goals that he very carefully set for himself, he allowed himself some indulgences in addition to, you know, lavish mansion and extensive wardrobe and cars and, and things of that nature and priceless antiques. He allowed himself the indulgence of speaking of himself in the third person.
0: A couple of weeks ago, I saw an old Edward G. Robinson movie. It's based on a Damon Runyon play. It's called A Slight Case of Murder and where he plays this guy named Remy Marco, who is a bootlegger who goes legit after the end of Prohibition. I was just wondering if maybe they named Remy after Remus.
1: Oh, I don't know. Because there were
0: so many kind of similarities in <laughs> yeah. their stories.
1: and now I need to see that immediately.
0: It, it was a comedy, so yeah. it wasn't a down and dirty The title But the title's
1: great. I love it. It's like a little bit pregnant. It's like Case of Murder. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it, it was an accident. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, just oops.
0: But much like Remus himself never tasted his own supply.
1: Exactly. I mean, that was a big irony of of the situation. George Remus developed the most complicated and complex and brilliant way of establishing himself as a bootlegger. You know, he moved to Cincinnati, which was very strategic. 80% of the country's pre-Prohibition bonded whiskey was within a 300-mile radius. He got permits. Um, Should I backtrack and talk about the the loophole that he found? Well,
0: well, first tell us about the Volstead Act and the 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 18th Amendment quickly, how that came to be.
1: Okay. Well, you know, Prohibition was, a long time in the making from the 1800s.
0: Temperance movement. The
1: temperance movements, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, upset about the fact that a lot of their husband's paychecks were going back into the corner saloon, a lot of domestic violence incidents, establishing the narrative that alcohol was bad for America, bad for American families, gained momentum. And I think after World War I, especially gained more momentum because there was a anti-German immigrant backlash. And of course, a lot of beer was being produced in the country by Germans. So it was sort of, that was, I think, the thing that really pushed it over the edge and got it to be passed Volstead Act was passed in October of 1990, and Prohibition itself took place in January 1920 is when it really kicked off.
0: We have George Remus, himself a German, so he feels acutely persecuted by all this.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. And I think it also helped George Remus that a lot of people were put out of work by Prohibition. Barrel makers, bottle makers, bartenders, service people— and Remus was one of the biggest employers in Cincinnati. He employed about 3,500 people. So he established himself as a folk hero. You know, not only was prohibition a very unpopular law, but he was also not only providing the liquor that people wanted, he was giving them jobs and the money to buy it. So he was in a sort of a win-win situation for himself, especially since he was making enough money to pay off all of the prohibition agents and and officials that otherwise would have, you know, had to arrest him.
0: It's amazing that on one day you have a behavior that is so much a part of people's everyday lives, and the next day they've been criminalized.
1: Yeah, overnight. There was a lot of writing pointing that out, the sort of absurdity of that, that people's just natural private habit was suddenly criminalized. Of course, you were still allowed to drink in your home if you had acquired the booze before Prohibition. In fact, I think Warren Harding's, one of his first actions was to move all of his booze into the White House, where he threw private poker parties, which George Remus was tangentially involved in. But yeah, it was was sort of an absurd law. Every day, somebody was pointing out the absurdity. Most of all, like H.L. Mencken and people like that on a national level and, and sort of for the. Intellectual set too.
0: also drinking was a professional obligation for them. It seemed like. Yeah.
1: Oh yes. Yes. Let's let's not forget that drinking was part of many people's professions and and their creative genius. Why not?
0: Now Remus grew up in Chicago, and yes. I, I feel like strange. Am I referring to myself? I'm talking like <laughs> Remus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Remus grew up in Chicago, and he was a true Horatio Alger story.
1: Yeah, he really was. Family emigrated from Germany when he was a kid. They settled in Chicago, and he had a really difficult upbringing. His father, in Remus's own words, was a mean and abusive alcoholic. And when Remus was fourteen, he had to quit school to help the family earn money. His father could no longer work, so he went to work in an uncle's pharmacy. Remus, you know, sort of threw himself into any endeavor that he did. He called himself a druggist devil boy,
0: kind of like a printer's devil.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, bought the pharmacy down the line, bought another pharmacy, called himself Dr. Remus, and of course began studying law at night because he wasn't content with just being a pharmacist. He also wanted to become a lawyer and conquer that profession.
0: He was born in Germany. And never was naturalized as a That's citizen correct. when he came to America. So we have these echoes to the dreamers that we have nowadays in America. It's, it's a story that seems to reoccur for us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was terrified. I don't think I'm giving much away in terms of spoilers to say that at some point, people are trying to oust Remus from the country because he was not a citizen. His father had never been naturalized, and Remus was never naturalized. And I think he was terrified by the idea. He you know, would make proclamations in newspapers that he argued cases before the Supreme Court court and how much more American could you get than that, that kind of thing.
0: Now, he did very well in the law. But in short order, he blew up his personal life and then blew up his professional life.
1: He did. You know, just to give you a taste of his legal profession, he very strategically put himself in the same law office as Clarence Darrow. And he quickly established himself as a very successful and sought-after Chicago defense attorney. He really made a name for himself by his court romantics. He would leap across the floor. He would kick and scream and cry and tear at his hair. He would begin fights with opposing counsel and earned the nickname the Weeping and Crying Remus. And it was actually— as a profession, as a lawyer, that he started getting a new type of clientele, men who were charged with violating the Volstead Act. And he was like, if these guys are cleaning up here, I, I'm so much smarter than them. I'm, I'm going to go into this business myself. And then using his pharmaceutical background and his legal background, he scoured the volstead Act for the loophole, which of course was if you had a physician's prescription, it was legal to manufacture and distribute alcohol for quote unquote medicinal purposes. Uh, and he knew nobody was really doing that.
0: <laughs> well, I grew up in a, a dry county in Arkansas for a few years, <laughs> and there was a type of mouthwash called Dr. Tishner's mouthwash mm. that had a very high <laughs> alcohol content (laughs) It was very popular down at the corner store.
1: (laughs) Yes, and littered in the garbage cans every Sunday morning, I'm sure.
0: There was a client of his named Imogene, And she didn't come from great circumstances either, but she had ambition to match his.
1: She did. They met actually in his law firm. She was the dust girl in his office. She cleaned up after hours and dusted his desk. She had a young daughter she was supporting by herself. They commiserated about their marriages. Remus's wife accused him of being somebody who, quote, had a habit of coming home early in the morning. If you can imagine that being on an official divorce complaint, it seems so strange today. And Imogene's husband was a philanderer who never had enough money. And above all, Imogene wanted money. She had come from sort of dire... Circumstances herself and never had enough. Her husband was always leaving her wanting. And she asked Remus to represent her in the divorce case and he did pro bono and they sort of really hit it off.
0: As a woman at that time, she didn't have the opportunities for advancement that he had.
1: Yeah. So, you know, Remus began confiding in her about his plans to become the country's preeminent bootlegger, and she knew all the money that he stood poised to make, and she decided she wanted a piece of that. In fact, she confided to one of her friends that she was going to quote, roll Remus for his role.
0: <laughs> From the very beginning, she had those designs.
1: Exactly. And Remus, I think, really cared for her. And he trusted her. He respected her advice. He actually called her the prime minister. And he told her all about the operation he was planning.
0: There's some weird irony going on here that his name is Remus, Romulus and Remus. Yes. He moves to Cincinnati, named after Cincinnatus, who was twice dictator of Rome. <laughs> but I'm
1: very impressed by your... your...
0: I can Google with the best of them. <laughs> Wikipedia, saved me. <laughs> And Cincinnatus was known for his selfless service to the city of Rome and Remus was the opposite.
1: Are you saying that Remus was not selfless? (laughs) Are you saying Remus was not an altruistic, philanthropic knight, shining knight? Uh, Remus
0: employed many. (laughs) He
1: did. Remus has the good stuff. I think that, you know, to the people he did employ, he he was a godsend. He was a folk hero. He was their sort of savior in this dark time. He was establishing the drink that they wanted so badly. But Remus, of course, you know, saw himself as this godly figure and began treating himself as such. He and Imogene bought a very lavish mansion in Price Hill, which was Cincinnati's wealthiest neighborhood, and planned extensive renovations. And he put the deed in Imogene's name, which I think was one of many things he came to regret, you know, as things unfurled between them.
0: I worked for a liquor retail company in Arkansas, and it was illegal for one person to own more than one store in a city. His name was Haroldine Hewitt, and everyone in his family owned a liquor store. <laughs> and then they called it the Springdale Liquor Association. And <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> so maybe they,
1: they maybe they learned something from Remus.
0: Even in the nineties, yeah. people were trying to circumvent the law when it comes to liquor. <laughs> now, Imogene is very savvy, very ambitious. Did she have an official role inside the circle?
1: Well, he called her the prime minister. You know, Remus gave her an allowance. She invested her allowance in his business dealings. I think she was somebody he confided in. He showed her certain paperwork. Remus didn't keep paperwork on everything, but whatever he had, he would show Imogene. He would consult her. If he was planning a deal, he would talk to her about it as evidence later on in the book when he decides to do something quite risky with Jack Daniel Distillery. I think he really respected her. Whether or not she had a role beyond being his, you know, unofficial prime minister and an advisor. I think that's as far as it went. You know, he also had the circle, as he called it, around him. And, and those were his main players, too.
0: When I was reading up on A Slight Case of Murder, <laughs> it said it was kind of loosely based on a Moliere play. Middle-class gentleman, bourgeois gendelon. The main thing about that is is a rich middle-class man. He has upper-class aspirations. And Remus himself is that way. He wants to be accepted as part of the
1: upper crust in the world. He really does. And I think that was very important to him. I think one of the biggest uh, examples of that is the lavish New Year's Eve party through in December of 1921. The renovations on the mansion were complete. They cost $750,000, which I think is about 10 to $12 million in today's money. He had this pool built for $175,000. Indoor. Indoor. Called the, indoor, called the Imogene bass after his wife. And my favorite detail about the pool was, you know, it was housed in this separate building. It was a wreath in a very elaborate Roman garden style. And it had electric bass, which were like an early version of a tanning bed, heated by incandescent lights and said to make the user frisky. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this party became famous. He gave out favors, diamond stick pins for the men. Every woman got a brand new 1922 car. He put a thousand dollar bills on everybody's plate. You know, and it were these parties that made people suggest that he was The inspiration for Jay Gatsby and The Great Gatsby.
0: His reach was immense at this time. What you said, thirty percent of the liquor in the country. He thirty-five
1: percent within a year of opening the circle, launching his plan. He owned thirty-five percent of all the liquor in the United States, which is just astounding. I think.
0: Can you do that all without any violence?
1: That's the thing. People ask me, why is Remus forgotten? You know, he was such a prominent figure and such a wild and crazy story from the 1920s. Why is his name not remembered today in the vein of Al Capone? And I really think it was because Remus built his empire with intellect, as opposed to systematic violence. And once Capone came in and the Tommy guns and the whole Valentine Day massacre, that's the narrative that took over. But Remus, now I'm sure that whiskey pirates who encroached on his property were killed here and there, but Remus was not somebody who was going out lying in wait with an automatic ready to shoot a bunch of people.
0: But he had people to take care of that for him, I'm sure.
1: I mean, there were no gangland wars. Remus didn't have any gangland wars. So if he had individual enemies, you know, he took care of that discreetly. But there was no sort of splashy newspaper gangland war. I think some people even called him the gentleman's bootlegger.
0: How did the system of permits work, actually?
1: You know, Remus had a connection in the federal government, a man named Jess Smith, who would provide Remus with authentic government withdrawal permits. And these withdrawal permits would allow him to access the whiskey from his distilleries for medicinal purposes. It was the sort of glue that held together his whole system where he acquired wholesale drug companies and distilleries and was able to use these permits to legally get the alcohol out of his distilleries so this was all legal if he had delivered that alcohol to the legal medicinal market his operation would have been on the up and up but the genius of his plan was that he also organized his own transportation company his employees would load barrels onto the trucks be sending it off to their ostensibly to the medicinal market but the other group of employees would hijack those trucks put the barrels on another set of trucks that went off to the illegal market to be sold at any price that remus named so he's basically robbing remus to pay remus
0: and he set up fake shell company, medical companies. Yes, to
1: he, would, he would set set that up just to have the appearance of working as a medicinal supplier of alcohol.
0: Did he ever, like, claim insurance on those things as well?
1: Not that I'm aware of, <laughs> but I would not put it past him. <laughs>
0: Maybe he thought that was pushing it just a little too much. <laughs> With those permits, do you think he operated a little bit more brazenly since he had someone in the Department of Justice in his pocket?
1: Yeah, I think that he did get pretty brazen because he paid off everybody. Everybody that could possibly be in his way, he paid off. In fact, if a bootlegger bought their supply from somebody other than Remus, like a run-runner bought supply from somebody other than Remus, Remus had people on his payroll, agents that would go and arrest those run-runners. He was sort of covering it from all tracks. Nobody was allowed to operate without Remus's say-so. And if Remus wanted to quash you out of the business, he had the means to do that. So I think he was very brazen about it.
0: This is just a, a weird side thing with all the research you did, was there like a predominant brand of the day that we don't know about anymore that has ebbed into
1: the past? It was funny. There were a couple of of brands, and they're escaping me now. But at Remus's trial in 1922, one of the government's star witness would mention a bunch of brands that she saw confiscated at his storage facility, which was called Death Valley. It was about 10 miles outside of Cincinnati. And of course, Remus's lawyer stood up and said, those brands have not been in production for 20 years. So trying to discredit her. But I can't quite remember what she said, no.
0: So, who were the Mabel men?
1: Mabel, when uh, to talk about them, I had to talk about Mabel Walker Willembrand who was appointed by President Warren Harding to be the assistant attorney general of the United States in 1921. And to me, she was a fascinating character. She was also a character on Boardwalk Empire, Esther Randolph, if anybody remembers that. And she was only 32 years old, five years out of law school, and had never prosecuted a single case in her career when she was hired. And I think it's fair to say that her bosses at the Department of Justice and in the White House, you know, this was Warren Harding's Ohio gang, a notoriously corrupt group of politicians, just thought, well, let's put the little lady in there. She's going to be overwhelmed. She's not going to know what she's doing. But she takes her oath of office in the fall of 1921 and just begins kicking butt. George Remus is her first big case. They called the agents that worked under her purview. Mabelman was a man by the name of Franklin Dodge, who would become very intimately involved in Remus's life.
0: I don't know if I'd employ an agent named Dodge. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yes, it's a little, it's almost if I had written it as fiction, I would have gotten called out for for being too unbelievable.
0: And she was extremely good at her job. One of the brightest legal minds probably of her time. Yeah. But there wasn't even a glass ceiling back then. It was like solid steel.
1: Yeah, she had to deal with rampant sexism. Her diaries and letters were full of complaints about how she just wished people would forget about her sex and focus on her work. Everybody was commenting on her facial features and her body and how she was just a little bit too ploddy. And the cut of her dress, and it was very infuriating for her. And she was also really bothered by the fact that she was, understandably, nearly deaf. And she spent every morning fashioning her hairstyle so that it covered her hearing aids. She did this for an hour. She was really terrified, I think, of her male colleagues, who are already judging her pretty harshly in the press, judging her again for another handicap. And she didn't want anybody to know that she also was dealing with that hardship.
0: And her personal life was dragged in the media, which she really did not like.
1: No, she divorced her husband. She was sort of pioneering in that. She left him. She moved in with a female friend from law school. She adopted a child on her own. And she was somebody who just was tough. You know, she took an ice-cold bath every morning (laughs) to give you a little insight in your personality. Um, Her favorite saying was, life has few petted darlings. (laughs) And my favorite anecdote, I think, from her entire life is when she was a kid, she once bit a pet cat's ear. And to teach her a lesson, her father bit her ear back. So (laughs) she learned the quid pro quo and punishment uh, pretty early on. Yeah,
0: she believes in immediate justice. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. But like many people that were in the government... She wasn't particularly in favor of prohibition. She right. just approached it as her job.
1: That's the irony that I, I find really kind of delicious. You know, George Remus, who made a fortune, in alcohol, was a lifelong teetotaler who never had a drop to drink. And Maple Walker Willembrand was somebody who really enjoyed her California clarets. She was a big California wine drinker before prohibition. And she quit, not because she believed in the law. She did not, but because she, she thought it was her job and she was following the spirit of the law. She did not think that prohibition was an enforceable law. She did not necessarily think it was a good law, but she was hired to enforce it and she was going to do so ruthlessly. Like George Remus, she did not like to lose. I think the two had much in common, actually.
0: And it seems that the people who were pursuing criminals had so many secrets of their own. The attorney general and Smith cohabitating. Oh, and yes. then, uh, yes. of course, Jig Hoover, of course, had his secrets as well.
1: Oh, yes. You know, Hoover was an interesting character in this book because he's 29 years old in 1924 when he's promoted to become the director of the Bureau of Investigation, you know, the precursor to the FBI. And few people know that Mabel Walker Willenbrand is the one who put in a word for him to be promoted. I, maybe Hoover wouldn't have made it without her recommendation. But I have to say that in, in this book, Hoover is actually one of the good guys. He had a kind of shady history. He, you know, uh, was involved in the Palmer Raids, the illegal arrest and detention of suspected anarchists and communists. But he was really determined to have an honest group of prohibition agents. He wanted a, a very clean force. It was one of his pledges that he made when he took the job. And to that end, he had heard rumors about Franklin Dodge and what he was doing with Imogene Remus, and he decided to investigate.
0: So what type of jail time, if someone were actually to get convicted in violating the Volstead Act, were they looking at?
1: Well, George Remus got two years for—
0: For running the biggest empire in the country.
1: Yeah, yeah. And Maple Walker-Williams was constantly lobbying for more steep fines and and longer jail sentences. He also got another year for running a nuisance, which was another thing they just sort of tacked on there. But he, of course, tried to spend his entire time in jail getting out any way he could, trying to get his sentence commuted.
0: Because it was at this point his mental health started to deteriorate pretty badly. Or so he
1: says. (laughs) So Remus is in jail. Despite Jeff's mispromises, you know, he had all these promises from the federal government that he was going to not go to jail because he was paying all these bribes. But Franklin Dodge manages to put him in jail. And when he is in the Atlanta penitentiary, Franklin Dodge was sent down there to investigate corruption among prison officials. And George Remus had heard things about Franklin Dodge. He was not a good agent. He was he was amenable to bribes. He would maybe be interested in a quid pro quo. And Remus figured if he could also bribe Dodge, why not? He was bribing everybody and maybe offer some information to Dodge that would make him look good with his superiors, that Dodge might do him a favor and help him get out of jail
0: but he didn't know there's going to be something else added into the bargain.
1: Oh, no. So he recruits his wife, Imogene, you know, of course, his prime minister, who was involved in all of his dealings, and he says, I want you to cultivate Franklin Dodge. He actually used the word. And, of course, Imogene begins cultivating Dodge, but not quite in the way Remus had hoped.
0: She made that garden grow. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, she did. <laughs> Woo!
0: <laughs> A, little, little,
1: A little hot in the collar there. A little
0: Voltaire for everybody there.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: So tell us what a brainstorm is.
1: So brainstorm's interesting. I did a lot of research into what the thinking was on insanity and temporary insanity at this time period, and the word brainstorm was first used in the trial of Henry K. Thaw, back in the early 1900s who was involved in a similar love triangle. During his trial, his lawyer said that he had been suffering from brainstorms. And a brainstorm at the time became a euphemism for temporary insanity. Sort of the idea that your brain is seized by some other force not connected to your regular mental function. And for that length of time, you are not yourself and you're not responsible for your actions.
0: We think about our time and we have these big celebrity trials like O.J. Simpson, the Jodi Arias, you know, seems to dominate television for a while. But back in the day, trials were also entertainment. They filled those column inches for newspapers.
1: Yes. They did. There were lines out the door for a Remus' trial there was somebody actually trying to hawk tickets for money to get into his trial. I mean, it was making international headlines, and you know, it was one of the early times of the tabloid wars that, that heated up during the 1920s. Everybody wanted to get the latest scoop and get the interview, and it was fascinating to me, you know, to read the kind of access that reporters had at this time period. I mean, you know, here Remus is in his prison cell, and his cell, I should say, this is this lavish suite where it's called Millionaire's Row, and he has uh, you know a cook, and and he has actually a stash of liquor. So. If we're a reporter comes up to visit him and he says, what will it be? You know, do you want this? Do you want this? It was sort of the access that reporters had and, and there was nobody telling Remus not to talk and that kind of thing. So it was just sort of a different time period in terms of the way news was gathered and the way people decided to tell their stories.
0: In your previous books, you've very much centered on women and their place in history. Now you have a main character to go along with Mabel and Imogene. What's it like writing about a man in the lead of things?
1: You know, I enjoyed him. You know, people ask me, Did, do I like George Remus or, and why would I want to center a book on this person? And I don't care if somebody's likable. I care if they're interesting. I've come across a lot of fascinating characters in history, but George Remus, I think, is the most fascinating character I've ever come across, or at least one of them. It was interesting to write from a man's point of view for a while. You know, I had done that on uh, some levels. I mean, all my books have some man in them, but to have somebody as a protagonist was different. And um, to see people reacting to men as opposed to writing women, you know, talking about how women um, see men reacting to them, it was just sort of turning the tables and it was, it was a fun writing exercise for me.
0: So what do you think it is about vice and transgressing social norms that
1: piques your interest and curiosity? Well, I think I went to 16 years of Catholic school, <laughs> 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 and anybody out there who was raised Catholic probably knows that the idea of, of the taboo, which is so ingrained in Catholic imagery and all of the stories, everybody's fallen. There's always kinds of, of stories of being people being disgraced. And I think that it's something that was ingrained and, and just sort of grew, not everything from Catholicism, but I mean as a kid I was also obsessed with unsolved mysteries. I told somebody last night that I went as a kid uh, out as Halloween as Robert Stack complete with a <laughs> trench coat and a fedora. and when anybody would answer the door, I would say doo, 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 doo. <laughs> So it was just something that was always interested in this. When I was a 12 year old, I, I tried to submit stories to Ellery Queen and Alfred Hitchcock about murderous grandmothers and nothing was ever accepted <laughs> but but I tried.
0: Do you write any fiction anymore?
1: I'd like to. There's plenty of stories from history where I'm like, God, that's fascinating. Yeah, you know, I investigated as a possibility of doing a nonfiction book, and then I see that the source material is not there. You know, to do a narrative nonfiction book in a novelistic way, which is what I try to do, really have to have primary source material for that to happen. You know, you're not allowed to make up dialogue or events. So you really have to have in order to make dialogue and conversations and craft scenes, you really need the primary source material. So if there's ever a story where the story's great, the characters are fantastic but there's not the source material. I will give it a shot as fiction.
0: You do have quite a big explanation of your methods at the beginning of the book. I I really appreciate that because there is some narrative nonfiction where they take a lot more liberties.
1: Yeah, I don't. I think it's important not to. You know, we're writing nonfiction, wonderful books, even, you know, The Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil would never be classified as nonfiction today. So it's very important to be forthright about your sources. I also was aware that I have a lot of dialogue in this book. I have a lot of, so much dialogue, and it could be mistaken for a novel because usually nonfiction, you don't have access to that kind of blow by blow. But I was lucky to have a 55, 500 page trial transcript. And trials are wonderful because they're all about somebody getting on the stand and say, well, I said this and he responded like this and I was thinking this and then he went and did this. So the material was there to craft a a cinematic scene. And I just wanted to be forthright that a lot of my stuff came from this trial transcript, which was very detailed and allowed me access to everything from dialogue to what somebody was thinking at a particular time.
0: Now, was the press coverage of Remus in the early days of his trials, was it unified saying, oh, we've got to get him, or were there some that rooted for him and some that rooted against him?
1: You know, George Remus wasn't the only thing on trial. Prohibition was on trial. And I think that people were aware of that. He sort of had a leg up from the beginning. And a lot of people were disgusted by Remus. He did some very despicable things. But just as many people thought, you know, this guy suffered for how long in jail for a stupid law that never should have been enacted in the first place? So it was kind of favoring Remus was a way to give the finger to Prohibition, really.
0: So I was thinking, you know, how could this man of the law, a member of the bar, just turn over to the dark side so quickly and and so i googled cocaine and lawyers
1: oh interesting
0: i just wanted to see if there's like a modern analog yeah yeah in 1990 there was a study that said attorneys used cocaine at twice the national rate interesting so it it seems that our uh, legal profession Doesn't think so much of the law at times.
1: That's really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, George Remus certainly wasn't doing cocaine, though. Like, he wasn't even drinking his own booze. So I wonder what kept him going, aside from (laughs) the enormity of his own ego.
0: Probably also rage.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Because even if he hadn't been technically mentally ill, his temper was just volcanic. It was like his father's.
1: Yes. He did have a volcanic temper. And there's some really, truly frightening scenes in the book where it's on full display. And uh, just to give your listeners a little hint, he once comes home from a business trip in the middle of the night and discovers Imogene's not there, finds out she went to Indianapolis with a salesman and some friends. He did not like the salesman. So he gets a loaded cane. This is like a gentleman's accessory that was weighted at one end, so it could double as a weapon. Hightails it out to Indianapolis and finds this salesman and confronts him in the middle of the night. I will leave a little suspense if people want to see what happened in that scene. But he had a fearsome temper, definitely.
0: Oh, yeah. He busted up a plumber that talked sassy, too. Oh, to yes,
1: him. he did. He did that, too. I think he and Imogene both had tempers. But his was obviously more dangerous.
0: So in going to Cincinnati to research and then go back to promote the book, what did the people of Cincinnati now think about the legacy of George Remus and their city? You yeah,
1: know, shockingly, a lot of them had never heard of him. And if they had heard of them, they didn't really know much about the story. So that's been a really satisfying thing to have resurrected a piece of their history that they might be interested in. And people who never were interested in history might start reading history. And they have a really one of the best stories of the Roaring Twenties, which is full of great stories right there in their backyard. They've been really receptive to it, which is which is great.
0: Uh, Cincinnati is a bit of an odd town. It's right there on the border of the south. So it is. it's neither fish nor fowl sometimes. Yeah,
1: yeah, it is that. I think, you know, not quite knowing what its place was. But it's really coming to its own. I, I've been out there for quite some time. The architecture is gorgeous. The, the, I will say the boo scene is fantastic. <laughs> uh, I spent a lot of time in that. But I will say this about the Midwest, and I found this with Chicago, too. They're very interested. Once they know that there is good history in their city, they're insatiable. They want to start reading everything. And I've, I've just been hearing from people who have started researching their own connections to their family's bootlegging back in the 1920s and sending me little tidbits about things they had heard or looked up. So it's a lot of fun when people actually take a personal stake in the story and figure out how it relates to their own lives, because you don't often think about history being relevant.
0: Is there anything that you've run across since that might make it into the paperback?
1: Oh, there was one thing. Very interesting. I heard from a couple of Remus's relatives. Let me remember this. Her great-grandmother was Remus's first cousin told me that Remus supported Hitler during World War II and his entire family disowned him after that.
0: And rightly so. Yeah. Is there another topic that has caught your imagination?
1: I am thinking about a few things. I am, in particular, kind of looking into a a murder mystery that happened a little bit after the George Remus story, a little bit after The Ghost of Eden Park, but it's in very early stages. It does have a woman who wields a gun, (laughs) I will say that, and it has a very bizarre male protagonist, so echoes of The Ghost of Eden Park.
0: Well, Abbott, I want to thank you so much for taking a few minutes and talking to me today. It's always a pleasure.
1: It was. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun.
0: Karen Abbott is the author of The Ghosts of Eden Park, The Bootleg King, The Women Who Pursued Him, and The Murder That Shocked Jazz Age America, which is published by Crown. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wyplfm at gmail.com or write to us at WYPL. 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.